So today we're wrapping up our story on the life of David. Um, and, and throughout David's life, there are moments of incredible greatness. Um, there are moments where we are so inspired. We want to live a life like King David. We want to lead like King David. And then there are other moments in David's life where we think, what were you thinking? How did someone with such greatness, someone who can write such beautiful poetry that we find in the Psalms, how can someone go so far off the rails? And one of the things that we find in the life of David that we also find in our own lives is that nothing goes as anticipated. Right? You can plan, but plans always lose out to reality. It could be because of decisions that you make, or it could be because of decisions that other people make. But reality always wins. Some dreams, some dreams will not come true. And some dreams can't come true. The prodigal in your family, the person that you've all been praying for, that you hope that this is going to be their year, that they're going to turn your life around, their life around, they may never turn their life around. You may never need the high chair in your kitchen. The two of you may not live happily ever after. That dream job, the reason you moved to D.C., you may never get it. You may not get into that school that you dreamed of. That relationship may not be restored. You may never get married. Money may always be tight. That may be the most inspiring um, intro to a sermon ever. And, and in, fact, in fact, you should know, like, it, only goes, it only gets darker and more oppressive and more downhill from here. And the reason, like, I legitimately thought about not preaching this sermon. I legitimately thought about not preaching this sermon because it's so heavy. But the truth is, life is difficult and life is heavy. And our dreams and our hopes and our expectations don't always turn out the way we planned. The life that we thought we were going to be living is often not the life we're living. And so my question, the question I want to wrestle with this evening is this, what do we do when our dreams can't come true? And this has a special importance for people of faith because some of you have been raised in churches where you've been told if you live in a particular way and if you follow a set of rules that God will bless you, if you sow, you shall reap. The problem is, is that you spent a lifetime sowing and somebody else is doing all the reaping. It seems that somebody else is receiving all these blessings and is leaving, living their best life now and you aren't. And the problem is this person over here who's living their best life, who seems to be doing all the, the reaping, isn't even following any of the ways of God. Right? They, they seem to be completely missing the mark, but yet they seem to have a blessed life. And so what do we do when dreams can't come true? So this brings us back to the story of David. The story of David goes something like this. When he's 15 years old, actually when he's 12 years old, he's anointed to be the next king of Israel. And at some point, probably not in that moment, but at some point he comes to the realization of the calling, of the vocation that he's been given, the destiny that he has. But then between that point at age 12 and when he actually assumes the throne at age 30, there is a long period of darkness where David spends a lot of time running for his life in the desert. And in those moments where David is running for his life in the desert, there has to be times when he asks, will my dream ever come true? 
Will this dream, this destiny, this, this calling that I believe has been pay, placed in my life, this thing that I've been anointed to do, will this dream ever come true? And so what happened when David was in the wilderness and he was afraid that his dream wasn't, come, wasn't going to come true, David did the same thing that we do when we're afraid our dream won't come true. He panicked. And when he panicked, he made some of the dumbest decisions he made in his entire life. And the decisions that he made had consequences not only for his life and his future, but it also had consequences for other people. People lost their life because David got angry and David panicked. Now, today we're going to pick up the story 22 years later. David corrected course. It looks like everything is going to work out. David's dreams, the destiny on his life, is finally becoming a reality. And it appears that during this time in the desert that David has learned lessons which helps him not only be a good king, but to be a great king. David, David's reign is the high point in Israel's history. So 22 years in, David is in his early 50s. Now you should know, and this isn't really super germane to the story, um, but I do think it's interesting, is, is that like in David's day, 50 was not the new 30. When, when you were 50 years old, you were old. Um, that meant because there was no dental care, so you'd probably lost all of your teeth. Um, you had horrible oral hygiene. You also probably had horrible physical hygiene. There were no showers. That was something I was thinking about the other day. Like the thing that we take for granted, this like amazing kind of refreshing thing that we do at the end of a hot day, we jump in the shower and it like washes the day off. Even the, the most powerful person in the world in David's time had never experienced a shower in the way we did. He stunk, right? Like, when you re got to that age, like, your, your teeth were falling out, you smelled, like, you wouldn't, the ruddy, handsome young man at age 12 who is selected to be king is not who is king at age 50. And so we don't know why it is, but David had always gone out with his men to battle. But for this moment, David decides that he's going to stay back at his palace. And maybe he's staying back because he's just tired and he's getting old. And so he's hanging out at his palace while his men are off fighting a battle. And there's always a new enemy. There's always a battle to fight. And this is like one of the most famous stories, um, one of the, most, the biggest failures in David's life, the story of David and Bathsheba. David is up on the top of the palace. He looks down and he sees a woman bathing on her roof. He's the king. The king gets what he wants. He sends his messenger down. Hey, the king would like to hang with you. She comes to his um, palace. Um, they end up um, sleeping together multiple times and she gets pregnant. Well, David then freaks out and he thinks, well, um, how, how am I going to handle this from a public relations aspect? And so he thinks, you know what I need to do is her husband is off fighting um, on the front line. I'm going to bring him home. He's going to sleep with her, and then it'll be kind of fuzzy whose child it is. Hopefully no one does the math too closely. So he brings home uh, her husband, Uriah. Uriah gets home, and Uriah is such an honorable person. He's like, I am not going to sleep with my wife when my men are off fighting a, a, the battle. So he actually sleeps outside. David's like, what am I going to do now? So then David devises a plan because he is already in the thick of it. So he just doubles down. So he contacts the captain of his guard. He contacts the, the head of the military, a guy by the name of Joab. And he says, hey, Joab, here's what I need you to do. I need you to send um, Uriah to the front lines so that send him on a suicide mission so that he never returns. And so Uriah go, is sent to the front lines on a suicide mission, just as David had hoped. He's killed. David marries Bathsheba, and life goes on. And for a moment, the child is born, and for a moment, it seems like every, 
Everything is going to work out. David feels like maybe he actually got by on this one. But then some time passes and the prophet Nathan shows up on his door. And the prophet Nathan, who has taken over for the prophet Samuel, the one who anointed David to be king, and Nathan tells him this story of this man who did an incredible injustice. And as Nathan told him this story, he, David becomes angry and he says, how dare that man do this injustice? He should pay for what he has done. And then Nathan looks him in the eye and says, no, it's you, O king. The story was about you. And David just collapses. And we read in 2 Samuel um, 12, verse 11, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. David, there is coming a day when, when the dreams that you had for your family are going to begin to unravel. Calamity is coming, and it will not be calamity from the outside, but the way you've set things up, the life that you built for yourself, the decisions you've made are going to bring calamity, and things are going to be, begin to unravel. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. And you did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's this realization like, wow, like I have, what was I thinking? What was I doing? David wakes up, and Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sins. You are not going to die. And there's a, there's a truth that we discover in this, this passage that we also discover in our own lives is that David has been forgiven, but the consequences of his brokenness continue to live on. Right? You, you know this in your own life. You've received grace. You've received forgiveness. But the consequences of your actions continue to live on. But for David, actually, it appears that maybe all is going to be okay. Nathan comes, he gives this proclamation, he says a day of reckoning is going to happen. David gets back on the straight and narrow. David corrects course in his life. And for 10 years, like, nothing happens. Everything is okay. And then everything begins to fall apart in a huge way. I should have actually given a disclaimer. Um, if there are any kids in the room, they should probably leave now because this story gets dark. David has an oldest son, a guy by the name of Amnon. He is the heir apparent to the throne. Um, Amnon is the one that is, um, David has most likely spent a lot of time grooming. He's invested in him. Like this is going to be, like this is the guy who's going to take over the throne. David also has a daughter by the name of Tamar. So Amnon is his son, Tamar is his daughter, Amnon and Tamar have different mothers, but the same father. Amnon is obsessed with Tamar. Tamar has no idea that Amnon exists. She won't give him the time of day, and it drives Amnon crazy. And the longer he goes, time goes on, the more obsessed he becomes with Tamar. And so finally he devises a plan. He goes to David and says, hey, um, I... I am, I'm, I'm sick. Um, could you have Tamar like make me some homemade chicken soup or something? And so she brings him a meal and um, she, show, he, she shows up and he's like, surprise, I'm not really sick. I was just trying to get your attention. And she immediately realizes what's going on and she resists and is like, absolutely not. I want nothing to do with you. 2 Samuel 13, 12 through 15. 
No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where should I get, where could I get rid of this disgrace? And what about you? What she's saying, Tamar is saying, if you go through with what you're about ready to do, I will be ruined. In our culture, someone that this happens to, there's no going back. Nobody ever wants to marry them. There is no future. There is no life for them. And also, Amnon, like, your life is over too. Why would you do this? Don't do this. Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. If you're going to go through with this, like if you are insistent on forcing me to do something I don't want to do, like let's, let's let the king help make this official. That way my life won't be ruined. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than her, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. And in fact, he hated her more than he'd loved her. And Amnon said, get up and get out. Her life is over, right? She has no future. It's ruined. She'll, no one will ever marry her. And there are no secrets in the palace because all the servants talk. Everyone knows what has gone down. David finds out and he's furious with his son. And he does nothing. He does nothing. Amnon continues on like it was just another day. Tamar, her life is, is essentially over. And Amnon just goes on like nothing had ever happened. David has another son by the name of Absalom. Absalom was Tamar's brother. Same mother. Both David's children. And he said, this injustice cannot go unpunished. Something has to be done. But he realizes he needs to play it safe because Amnon still has an immense amount of power in the kingdom because he is the heir apparent to the throne, right? He is, he, if there is a pecking order in David's family, Amnon is at the absolute top. And so Absalom bides his time and then finally he, he takes his sister Tamar in and he cares for her and his anger begins to build and begins to build and begins to build. And then finally, two years later, he has a family dinner. He asked David um, if he can have the whole family over for a dinner. And then while they're all eating together, he takes, he offs his brother. He kills Amnon. Absalom kills Amnon like in front of the entire family. And then Absalom knows like, holy crap, what have I just done? I just, I just killed the heir apparent to the throne. I've got to get out of here. And so he takes off and he flees um, to essentially what would be modern day Syria. And you know what King David does? Nothing. This is one of the more interesting things. Like I actually could preach, I think there's an entire sermon here on David's complacency. I think it's the same thing that left him at home while everyone else was fighting in the battle. I think um, there's, maybe he felt he'd lost all moral authority in that moment. Um, and so he just doesn't feel he can speak to Amnon. And now when Absalom has killed a, his son, he like says nothing. He does nothing. He acts like nothing has happened. And so Absalom, for the next two, year, two years, he's in the desert, and he tries to get King David's attention. And King David ignores him. He's like, who? 
I, I don't know who Absalom is. Like, he won't give him the time of day, which only makes Absalom more and more furious. And he can't get a message through. No one in the family will talk to him. And so finally, he knows that his only recourse, the only way that he can get to David is by talking to Joab. But Joab refuses to return his phone call as well. And so then he does the only thing in the story that's even slightly funny is he sends servants to Joab's um, farm. So Joab has like a country estate. He sends servants to Joab's farm and he burns it down. That's not the funny part. Joab then, Joab then like shows up and it's like, dude, what the crap? Why did you burn down my farm? And he's like, well, you wouldn't return my text. It's the only way I could get a hold of you. But here's what's interesting. Joab's like, I'm listening. And Joab says, okay, I'll help you out. I will get a message to the king for you. If you burn down my farm, I'm not helping you, just like as a side note. So anyway, so he's like, I'll help you out. And so he, um, Joab has a woman go before the king, get an audience with the king. You couldn't just like waltz in and say, hey, yo, king, I've got a message for you. So he has a woman go in that has the trust of the king. Um, Joab tells her what to do. Um, she goes in and she tells this story. Once again, it's a made-up story. It's about David and his relationship with Absalom. He makes up this story. She makes up this story. And David, he, he like walks into the trap again. He gets really furious. Like, how dare that person treat that, their son that way or the person in the story that way? And then she looks at him and says, no, David, that person is you. You are the unjust one. He's like, ah, they got me again. And then, um, and then it's really interesting. David's like, did Joab put you up to this? It's really just interesting the text says this. Did Joab put you up to this? And then she stutters and I was like, uh, maybe. Um, and so David's like, you know what? You're right. I have been mistreating Absalom. And so he calls Absalom in. And when Absalom walks in, he puts his hands out. He lays his hands on him, which, is, which was the way the king would say, hey, we're good. All is forgiven. There's no animosity between us. Things seem okay. Absalom leaves, and then David ignores him, doesn't talk to him again, doesn't call on him, doesn't hang out with him, he doesn't get invited to family dinners, and Absalom's just like, what gives? I thought we were okay, and, and, and bitterness begins to build, and finally Abs Absalom says, you know what, David's got to go, like he, he isn't, he's not ruling effectively, it is time that we have a new king, 2 Samuel 14, 32. I want to see the king's face, and if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. And they meet, but Absalom is, is hurt, and he plots to replace his father, and he sets himself up as judge. And Absalom stole the heart of the people. And so what he ends up doing, he basically makes himself a customer service agent at the front gate of Jerusalem. And he sets himself up as the judge. David had become so distant and so removed. So he goes and... Um, he just says to ask people, hey, you got a problem? Is there something in the kingdom that isn't working? I know a guy. Like, I can fix it for you. You know, he's got a lot of influence in the kingdom. And so he does this for four years. Every morning, he's up early at the front gate of the city saying, hey, you need anything? You need any repairs? Any potholes on your street that they're not taking care of? I'll make a call. So after four years, I mean, this happens, right? You have a, you have a city official who's like completely removed, and then you have somebody else who's kind of coming up in the wings who's making stuff happen. And so as time goes on, he wins the hearts and minds of the people. Second Samuel 15.10. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, say, Absalom is king. So the plan was this. 
He would, um, they didn't have newspapers or instant message or texting or Twitter. The only way that you got word around was to send messengers. And so he's like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to send messengers around the kingdom. And at the exact time that I am, I'm enacting a coup, I'm going to, at the same time, I'm going to um, uh, send messages saying that I am now, that, that I am now the king. So things, immediately David realizes what's going on, and that not only what's going on, but that Absalom actually might be successful. And even if he's not successful, it's going to be bloody. So in verse 13, we read uh, 2 Samuel um, uh, 13, uh, make sure I got my right, 15, I mean, 2 Samuel 15, verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people are with Absalom. And then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to a sword. Like, he's like, we have to get out, or there will be bloodshed. And I think what's interesting is, in, in, this, in this narrative, we see a real growth in David. This is the second time that he's run to the desert. Previously, he was, eight, or previously he was 22 years of age. Now he's 60, 61. He's been king for 30 years, and he's on the run again for his life. But this time, before, he makes unwise choices because his confidence was in his own strength and his own abilities. But this time, you see that his confidence has shifted, and he's willing to trust that God is going to work this out if God wants to work it out. And so he, he's on the run, but once again, he's heartbroken and he's angry and he wants someone to blame. And, and he's got to be thinking like, I corrected course. I was a good king. So everyone runs out of the city and as they're leaving the city, he um, takes the Ark of the Covenant with him. Now, wherever the Ark of the Covenant went, that was where the presence of God was. In one of David's dreams, one of his hopes, one of the things that he'd hoped would like, be the high point of his life would be that he would build a temple. And in that temple would, in, in Jerusalem would rest the Ark of the Covenant. This is the temple that Solomon, his son, ends up building. But David, his dream had always been to build the temple for the Ark of the Covenant. And so as they're fleeing the city, they take the Ark of the Covenant with them. They take the presence of God with them. And the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. Zadok, the high priest, was there too. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as they're on their way out, and as they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, David just has this change of heart. And he says, you know what? The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God belongs with the people. Like, I, I am a steward of power. I serve somebody else. I am not going to rob the people of God's presence. And so then the king said to the high priest, or said to Zadok, take the Ark, back, take the ark of God back into the city. And he says this, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But, he, but if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready and let him do whatever seems good. David is saying, look, it's God's will, not my will. And even in the midst of this chaos, even in the midst of everything unraveling, even in the midst of David's dream coming apart, he did not lose his confidence in God. He chose not to abandon God even when it seemed that everything was going to fall apart. He goes, he leaves. Um, I'm going to 
give you the Cliff Notes version here, but essentially what happens is one of um, David's advisors, one of his senior advisors, um, who actually happened to be Bathsheba's grandfather, so I'm guessing he was never really a fan of David. Um, one of the senior, he, when David fled, he flipped sides and became Absalom's senior advisor. And he says, look, you, you need to know that uh, your father is a brilliant warrior, and if you give him any time at all, he's going to go out of the city, he's going to create a plan, he's going to crush you. You need to strike immediately before he has any time to think his plan through. David then thinks, you know what, I should probably send my own, um, another senior advisor to act as if they flipped back into the city and give the exact opposite advice. And then maybe that will confuse him. So he sends his, another advisor back who acts as if he is on Absalom's side. And he says, what did the other guy tell you? <sighs> Don't listen to him. Here's what you need to do. Take some time. Get up an army. Your father's a great warrior. He's going to build, you know, he, you need enough military, you need enough power, enough strength to be able to withstand it. Like, don't rush. The other advisor is so distraught because he knows how this is going to end that he goes home and he hangs himself that day. He's like, this story is not going to end well. 2 Samuel 17, 7 through 9. Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice of Adif Ahitophel has given, has given is not good. You know your father and his men. They are fighters and as fierce as wild and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter and he will not spend the night with the troops. Even now he is hidden in a cave or some other place. If he, attack, if he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, there has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear. For all of Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those who are and those with him are brave. This is where he's giving them the advice. Look, just bide your time. You're not going to get him anyway. Take your time. This is the advice that Absalom ends up going with. So what David does is he begins to, to split his military into three divisions. He gives three separate commanders. And then essentially he draws Absalom and his army into a forest. Um, into a forest at Ephraim. And David's men were experienced fighters. And they were used to fighting in forest conditions. Absalom's men, for whatever reason, were completely overwhelmed by the forest. And it ends up being a bloodbath. We'll read in a second. 20,000 people are killed. But as they're headed towards the battle, this is what's interesting. David says, now his son Absalom wants to throw him, overthrow the throne and wants to kill him. But David is so dejected. He's seen his entire life unravel. All the hopes and dreams he'd had for his family are beginning to unwind before his very eyes. And he says, I want nothing to happen to Absalom. I can't lose another child. I cannot lose another child. So 2 Samuel 18, 5 through 8, he says, be gentle. This is him giving um, instructions to his commanders. Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And then they took the battle. Took, then the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And it was a bloodbath. There's Israel's troops were routed by David's men and the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men the battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men than the sword. I think that's really interesting. Like, it was such a hard place um, to fight that more people died because of the forest instead of the military battle. 
In the forest, Absalom has this incredible hair. He's known for this long, flowing hair. He's riding on his horse. His hair flies up. This is a bad way to go, by the way. His hair flies up, gets caught in a tree, and Absalom is hanging from a tree, unable to rescue himself. David's men come by. They decapitate him, and the battle's over. David is once again king. And the news comes to David Hey, there's no longer a threat to your throne. Your son is dead. And David loses it. Like he is a blubbering fool. And Joab is like, dude, your men are watching. They just won a decisive battle. Why are you acting as if you just lost? This is terrible for morale. You've got to get it together. But David in this moment, I think, is really having this, this, this realization that he brought all this chaos on himself and also all the hopes and the dreams that he'd had for his family and for his future are falling apart. David is now the king again. He goes back. He lives, he's 61 when this happens. He dies at age 70. He goes back and the rest of the story of David's life is pretty boring. Nothing else interesting happens and then he dies. And and the story is, like, not how I want the story of David to end. I want the story of David to end with, a, with, a, with some kind of grand narrative of redemption and how David lives out his days and makes amends for everything he ever did that was wrong. But the problem is, is that many of our dreams and many of our stories don't, aren't, they don't, always, they don't have a neat conclusion. The situations we find ourselves in, sometimes there just isn't a solution. Right? There isn't an easy answer. And the, what I love about the biblical stories, like if you don't read the Bible or you're like kind of like, you know what, these Bible stories are for children. What I love about the stories in Scripture is they do not sugarcoat the narrative. Often these stories do not end, have a happy ending. They do not live happily ever after. David corrects course in his life and he, he lives in a, in, a, in, a, in a much better way and he tries his best to make, to, 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 um, to make up for the mistakes that he makes, made. But the greatness of his previous kingship never return. His dreams and his hopes and his expectation for the future, they are never fully restored. And the message that I want us to hear this evening the message that I think we need to hear from this story is that the foundation of our faith is an answered prayer. The foundation of our faith is not everything going our way. The foundation of our faith is not happily ever after. See, because what we discover in the story of David, particularly in this moment where he's fleeing from the city and where he sends the Ark of the Covenant back into the city and he says, look, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. Let him do whatever he seems, seems good to him. In this moment, there, David is showing, I have an incredible confidence in God. No matter what happens, no matter how this story turns out, I know that God will be with me. I trust the faithfulness of God. And I think some of us, we've been raised with a narrative that says if we are living the way we should be, our life will be blessed. And then everything falls apart. 
Some of you have been told that if you just live the right way or pray the right prayer, that a situation will be healed. But others of you know that you've prayed that prayer and that relationship fell apart anyway or that person died anyway. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. The foundation of our faith is not everything going our way. It is not a happy ending. It is always a mistake to wrap our faith in God around the fulfillment of our dreams or answered prayer. Dreams that don't come to reality, they have nothing to say about God's faithfulness or God's activity in the world. What David understood and what David knew, even in his darkest moments, is that he could trust God, that he could put his confidence in God, and that God would be with him even if his dreams did not come true. We began this series with these words, Psalms 25, verses, beginning with verse 1. And you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. This is the sermon that I kind of wanted to, to skip. But I was surprised this morning when I finished how many people came up to me and said thank you for preaching that sermon because I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a service where we're told it's going to be okay but I'm in the midst of something right now and it does not look like there is going to be a good resolution. And there are people in front of you and people behind you and to the right of you and to the left of you and they look so good tonight and they look so happy and they're really happy with their iced coffee and they just, they look like life is all together. But if you knew their story, you would know there is a story of heartbreak and pain and brokenness and of dreams that cannot ever come true. But also if you listen to their story, there would be a story of God's faithfulness and God's love, and God's grace. And what I want to tell us this evening, what I want to kind of end with this evening, the word of hope that I hope that I can proclaim is this, is that your dreams may not come true. Your dreams may not be able to come true. That prayer may go unanswered, or at least answered in the way that you hoped that it would be answered. But what I am confident of is that God is faithful. And that God will walk through with you even during the dark moments of your life. And that even when there is a death of a dream and things don't turn out the way you hoped they would, that God will bring redemption and new life and new possibilities and new creation where it seems that all there is is ashes. And David's story, David builds something, he, he creates something that ends up be creating the foundation that Jesus will one day emerge from. David's story, when we look back, has some of the, 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 the most powerful moments in all of Israel's history. But that is in spite of David's mistakes. And that is in spite of how David thought things were going to turn out. David did not imagine that he would be 60 years old and his family would completely fall apart. That's not how he thought that story was going to end. But through it all, God was faithful. When I was young, like 25, which is half your age, or most of your age is here, when I was like 25 years old, everything in life seemed to be going right. And I would have told you, you just need to pray harder. I mean, my sermons were terrible, right? Because you just need to have more faith, 
It's all going to be okay. God's going to work it all out. But the longer you live life and the older you get, you realize that sometimes you pray for someone to be healed and they die anyway. And that life doesn't always turn out the way that you hoped. And so my sermons may be way less cheery now that I'm however old I am now. I'm trying to forget. My sermons are way less cheery, but they're way more confident that in the midst of the darkness, God will be with you. God will walk with you. And there is new life on the other side of broken and shattered dreams. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this incredibly honest narrative about David's life. If I'm honest, I wanted to skip the story. I wanted to take it out of the Bible. I, I want it all to be happy and everything to work out okay and everyone to, David's family to live happily ever after and all, everyone to get along. But as we know, that's not how life works. And so we thank you for your, um, your grace and your redemption we thank you for resurrection life. And I pray this evening for that person who is sitting here that has just seen the death of a dream where that dream is never going to come true. I pray that you would give them the hope and the confidence that you were there with them and that you were walking with them and that you were faithful and that there is new life and new possibilities on the other side. In Jesus' name, amen.